Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Mo Money Mo Houses. I'm your host, Jessica Morehouse, and today I am very excited to kind of uh, continue the conversation I had um, last week uh, in episode six. Last week, I talked to Bridget from the personal finance blog, Money After Graduation. And um, besides talking about switching careers and going back to school, we also talked about investing in the stock market. So today, I'm going to be talking to Barry Choi from the personal finance blog, Money We Have, about do-it-yourself investing, which includes uh, index investing and using the couch potato strategy. So we're going to be getting into all of that. One thing I'm going to hint at right now to kind of entice you to listen to this entire episode is um, I am going to be doing a special giveaway I am very excited about. So stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out more details about what I'm giving away and how you can enter to win. So welcome to the program, Barry. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so let's start um, from the beginning. So how did you get interested in money and personal finance and all of that stuff? Uh, it comes from a few different directions. First, I got lucky. My parents, uh, they taught me to save early. They were immigrants. Mm-hmm. They came to Canada. Obviously, they saved and before they bought anything. Uh, so as soon as I got my first job, they encouraged me to open up an RSP with the bank, mutual funds. And that's wow. kind of exactly what I did. So, you know. That's talking, awesome. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about 18, 19. Wow. And nice. it sounds really weird because a lot of that, you know, at that age, you're thinking about spam. I wasn't exactly making a lot, but... Mm-hmm. You know, that being said, if you can put $25 a month, it really does go a long way. Absolutely. And it's just kind of automatic to an extent. You kind of get into that mindset. If you can get into the mindset really early, it just carries forward. Exactly. If you create that habit, then it just it becomes second nature for sure. Mm-hmm. So you're always kind of good with your money, it seems like. What made you uh, decide to start a personal finance blog? Do you just have so much knowledge that you wanted to share with people? Uh, or It's a little complicated. It was almost... By accident, yeah. Uh, you, you know, um, I just talked about how I was always good with money, but at the same time, the blog kind of started because I made mistakes with my money, mm. and I don't want anyone to make the same mistakes that what I made. What kind of mistakes are you talking uh, about? The biggest mistake was, it's not really a mistake, it's almost like a learning lesson, mm-hmm. so, so let's be careful about that. Yeah. You kind of need to learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. So originally, as I mentioned, I started with mutual funds with the bank, and eventually I switched to investment advisor because I wasn't really happy with the bank's mm-hmm. service. You know, you step in, they tell you to buy a mutual fund, and you won't hear it from them for a year. And you, in your own head, it's like, oh, maybe I should follow up. And you do the following up, mm-hmm. right? Like, they don't come calling no. you. You never hear from them. So I was like, okay, there's got to be a better way. And just by bad timing, or maybe good timing, mm-hmm. one of my former coworkers became a financial advisor mm-hmm. and convinced me to switch over. Again, mm-hmm. it sounds great in theory. Well, yeah, you're like, oh, I trust this person. Why not? What a great idea. Exactly. <laughs> but again, at the young age, you know, you're talking mm-hmm. about mid-20s, you're thinking, like, oh, this guy's going to take care of me. He's my friend. He's going to check in. And, you know, I, I get put into these mutual funds or whatever, and it sounds like a good idea. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy's not charging me. And eventually, I'm just started researching a little bit more, just generally talking. We're talking about the different firms, online message boards. And I mentioned that oh, yeah, I like this firm I'm with. They don't charge me anything. Mm-hmm. And a random stranger on this board messaged me and said, hey, you know what? They are charging you. You might want to look into it because there's no way they're not mm-hmm. charging you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, that's <laughs> interesting. That's news to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and a lot of people are stubborn online. They think they're always right. Yeah. But, you know, it made sense because why would anyone do anything for free? Exactly. They're making money somehow. Exactly. So I, I looked into the fees and I realized, like, oh, wow, I'm being 
charged a lot, uh, 2.5%. Wow, that's high. A mutual fund. It it is on the higher end, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that's normal. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but over the course of your entire savings life, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So, and more importantly, it had back-end fees to call it deferred sales charges. Okay, what are what are those? Exactly? So, with when you use an investment firm, uh, sometimes with the banks also, when you initially invest into mutual funds, they won't charge you a whole lot, like a front-end fee. Right. But if you decide to pull out or draw money or exchange firms, they'll charge you back-end fees, and those are the DSE fees. Oh. So, generally speaking, it's like a seven-year range. So, at seven years, you know, at the first year, it might be 5%, and it mm-hmm. slowly reduces until it gets to zero. Okay. But the point is, you know, I had told my advisor that, hey, I might need this money. Maybe it's not the best idea, so it should be less risky. Um, but when I found out, I was furious. I was like, I could not believe that. They locked you into something that you didn't agree with. Exactly. You're like, wait a minute, I told you uh, no. <laughs> yeah, it didn't make any sense. So, like, for me, I was just like, you know, it was almost like a, an epiphany, almost. Like, they're mm-hmm. telling like, what's going on? So I started doing the research, started reading blogs, you know, got personal finance books, started reading, mm-hmm. and as soon as I understood the debate, and this only took like, you know, 10, 20 hours of basic research. It's really not that exactly. much of a time. You realize like, oh my God, this guy has not done me any solids. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting enough, when I started questioning this advisor about it, it almost felt like I knew more about finances than him. Because That's I go, scary. why are you putting me in something that has this high fees when mm-hmm. I told you? You know, I might need the money. And his response was, well, if you're not happy with the returns, I'll put you in something with more risk. And I was like, that's nothing to do with what I'm asking you. Mm-hmm. So it was very clear that this guy. He was <laughs> kind of looking out for himself, more like. Exactly. Yeah. It was uh, it was not a good experience. But fortunately, um, I was able to get out. And that's mm-hmm. when I became a do-it-yourself investor. And, and you know, as I mentioned, I was yeah. just like, well, I've made a lot of mistakes here. And I, mm-hmm. hope, I hope no one else makes these mistakes. No kidding. Yeah. I don't get that. I think you can help a lot of people with your story. So, so how long have you been a, a do-it-yourself investor? Uh, I've, it's been about four or five years. Wait, man. Time goes by so <laughs> I know, fast. Right? <laughs> when you point out. Um, probably a good five years now, I would wow. say, just just before I got married. So I was probably pushing six now, mm-hmm. uh, roughly. And so how does one become a do-it-yourself investor? Because that is something, personally, that me and my husband are also very interested in doing. We are currently with a bank and we're not exactly happy with the service and our returns. And we're like, you know, I bet, honestly, we could probably do this better ourselves. We have, but where would I start? Because I am one of those people where I don't know a lot about investments. And I does my husband. We've read some books and some blogs and stuff. But I think just the whole idea of doing it on your own and being completely responsible for all of your investments is a scary thing. And so it's where, what's the first step? First step for me is always to just look at your individual situations. Like mm-hmm. you've established, you want to learn more. So as you mentioned, you want to read a few personal finance books to be one. There, there's mm-hmm. a lot of good ones out there. A lot of people get turned off because they're very technical. Right. Um, what kind of books would you suggest? Just like one, one um, or two? I've actually got two great books I would recommend mm-hmm. right off the bat. Pre Banji's got a great book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stop Overthinking Your Money. It's, yeah. a, it's a good introduction. That's a great book, actually, yeah. Uh, Robert Brown also did Wealthing Like Rabbits. Mm-hmm. It's more of a pop cultural mm-hmm. references to money. And a lot a lot of people have heard of Wealthy Barber Returns by David yep. Chilton. Mm-hmm. So those are three very basic books. And again, people get intimidated because they're technical, but these three books, they're not. They're not. Um, so they're once you understand... Gateway books. <laughs> exactly. And the nice thing about it, they kind of lead you into it if you want to learn more, because investing is such a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, after that, a lot of 
you got to understand that you can do it yourself. A mm-hmm. lot of people are so confused of what an RRSP is. People think you buy an RRSP. They don't realize that, no, it's a savings vehicle and you can invest mm-hmm. in anything you want. You don't need an advisor. So, you know, the most basic way of setting it up, if you want to do it completely yourself, you would need to go through a discount brokerage. Uh, right. And those, every single major bank has their own wing. Uh, so it's easy to set one of those up, but there's virtual ones which are even cheaper. It's really just a preference. And there's a lot of great other resources that help you. Tangerine offers a lot of great resources mm-hmm. to help you start investing on your own. Uh, without mm-hmm. the aid of a financial art, they charge you a little bit more than doing it on yourself, but right. it's still significantly cheaper than if you were to use an investment of right. an advisor. Um, from there, it's, it's simply a matter of, of just learning. You know, one very popular method of investing for, for newbies is mm-hmm. the couch potato strategy. Right. Do you want to explain a bit about that? Because that's definitely like a buzzword I hear a lot. And I'm always like, aha, because I've heard of the blog before, but I have no clue what this, like the strategy means. Like, yeah. what, what does it mean? <laughs> so, so the couch potato strategy is kind of sounds like what it is. Like, yeah. you're sitting on your couch and you're investing. But the idea is, once you've got everything set up, you know, you might only take 10, 20 minutes a year to review mm-hmm. uh, your entire portfolio. The basics is you're investing in index funds. For people who mm-hmm. aren't familiar with indexes, mm-hmm. instead of buying individual stocks, right. um, you never know what's going to go up. And, and advisors who tell you they know what's going to go up, what's going to go up, they're lying. They're, no no yeah, one can, no predict, one can predict that. Yeah. So, instead of, so as mentioned, instead of buying individual ones, you're going to buy a basket of stocks. And that's what an index is. Okay. So you were talking about hundreds of stocks in one go. Okay. Um, so that's done through an index. You can do it through, there's index mutual funds and there's ETFs, which mm-hmm. is a little bit more uh, technical, but it's really not at the same time. So essentially you're buying the whole market and there's really just four markets any average Canadian investor needs to buy into. Mm-hmm. Canadian market, mm-hmm. the US market, the international market, and the Canadian bond market. And those unfamiliar bonds is basically uh, investments that are less risky, right. more yeah. safe. And, the other aspect of the catch potato strategy is you need to understand your risk tolerance mm-hmm. and your asset allocation. So if you're younger, you've got way more time to invest. So that means you can invest in riskier stuff. So if something crashes tomorrow, you've got 30 years to figure it out. Exactly. It's you've got plenty of time. <laughs> but if you're 60, you probably want to have most of your own investments in safer stocks. Right. Or safer investments, rather. There's no safe stocks. So yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you just... The way it works is every year you, re- you rebalance. Right. So you sell some of your good indexes that have been doing really well, and then you buy your lower indexes that haven't been doing so well. So essentially what you do is you're selling high and buying low, which is the complete opposite of what normal investors do. Right. They'll chase gains. They'll see apples on a tear. They'll buy, buy, buy. Yeah. And they'll see Blackberry selling, so they'll sell, sell, sell. So they're not really profiting. They just end up losing because it's, it's always just yeah. that herd mentality. And a lot of people just don't understand. You need to do the opposite when investing. And it's very hard to do. We all know that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So once, I guess, you have that foundational knowledge, which is key, um, I'm just kind of thinking about myself. Say I want to go the DIY route. How would I go about doing that with, you know, right now all my money's kind of tied up at a bank. How do I get it out of there and start doing it on my own? Yeah, you want to decide first who you're going to be with. So that could be Tangerine or one of the discount brokerages I mm-hmm. discussed. You need to set up those accounts first. Mm-hmm. And once you've got the account set up, you want to have them contact your current bank or whoever your investments are with and request a transfer in kind with your RSPs. Because if you don't, what happens is a lot of people make the mistake of withdrawing their RSPs and depositing the new account. But you actually end up paying taxes and you lose that contribution rate. But a transfer in kind just basically it transfers everything over. 
Uh, usually what they'll do is transfer it to a similar mutual fund, but obviously now that you're doing it yourself, mm-hmm. you want to transfer it into cash. Right, okay. So we, you keep the money, like say I've got some investments in this RSP, I want to do it myself, say I want to go with Tangerine or whatever, I just like still have that, I instead of just taking the money out and putting it into a savings account, I just keep my RSP, that vehicle, but instead of um, putting that money into another investment, I make it into cash? Technically, it just transfers into cash. Okay. Sort of. it, okay. it just kind of depends on um, which sometimes they can't technically put in cash. It's a cash sitting in one of your, your new RSP accounts. So right. technically, you have two RSPs. A lot of people don't really. You can have 50 if you want. They're That's just with different places, so it doesn't matter. Um, you're, whoever you're with, Tangerine, TD, uh, Bank of Montreal, it's mm-hmm. all different. So let's just talk about Tangerine yeah. for a little bit. So they have their own line. They're similar to index funds, couch potato style. It's a little bit active managed to the extent where it's, everything's done automatically. So once you figure it out, your asset allocation, they've got three different funds that you can choose from. Whichever one fits your profile the best, that's what goes in. So you can make your regular deposits and everything's done automatically. Mm-hmm. Zero thing. You don't even need to look once a year. That's nice. Um, <laughs> the disadvantage is they're charging a little bit more. Right. They're charging you an MER, that's the management expense ratio, of 1.07%, mm-hmm. which is less than half of what you're paying at the less bank. Less than that 2.5%, right? Exactly. But if you go to the discount brokerage, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. you can get even lower, probably 04 to 0.5. The best bank to do that is with through TD because they offer their own line of index funds called the TDE series. Right, I've heard a lot about that. Exactly. Yeah. So if you are if you don't want to get too technical and you want to stick with that, that's a, a great secondary option. A right. lot of people, what they actually do is they'll start with tantrum because they're a little bit intimidated mm-hmm. and then they graduate themselves to the E-series. And for myself, I started with E-series mm-hmm. and then I switched to ETFs, mm-hmm. which are exchange-traded funds, which is essentially the same thing. It's just, okay. but it trades like a stock. So the main difference is when you're buying the mutual funds is there's no fees. So when you buy and sell, you don't pay anything. Right. But with the ETFs, it trades similar to a stock where if I'm buying, I'm going to pay my brokerage an X amount. And when I sell, I pay an X amount. But it's still an index fund overall. Okay. So of course, people are going to ask, well, why would you do that? Well, the MER is even lower. Right? I'm talking about like, you know, 0.1 to 0.2. So wow. I've gotten my fees now to below 0.2. So if you do a basic math, once your portfolio is at least $50,000, mm-hmm. even if you're doing four to six trades a year, you're still making more money because your fees are so low. So that's kind of, you just have to do the mental math and it's not that complicated at all. Yeah. So I guess another question I have is how much work is it to actually do it yourself? Like it seems kind of, you know, intimidating. Like once you, I guess, educate yourself and it doesn't seem so scary, like how much time do you have to dedicate to selling and buying and monitoring and making sure it's going the right way? So with Tangerine, you don't have to do anything. Right. Nothing at all. So that's great. Uh, when you do it yourself, discount brokerages, I'd argue the most complicated part is setting up accounts because, <laughs> you know, TD knows that this is a great product. Yeah. Right. But they're not going to advertise it because they'd rather sell you the, you know, the advisor funds where right. they can make more money. So they make it very difficult to sign up. It's, it's not that complicated, but you got to request a form. You got to fill it out by hand, mail it. And it, it's, oh it's actually God. ridiculous. But once it's all set up, <laughs> it's actually not that complicated. And you actually, you, with the next funds, you don't want to look at your investments every single day. It's yeah. actually better. I'd say no more than twice a year. Okay. All right. As okay. I mentioned, you're going to look, you're going to see how your things, and if you read the couch potato website, it's CanadianCouchPotato.com. Yeah. Um, it just explains you sell what's doing really well and you buy by the ones that aren't doing so well. And you only do that like twice a year. 
I do it only once a year now. Once a year. You can kind of casually look because most of the time it's connected to your bank anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I tell people that you should be looking at your investments as often as you see your doctor. Right? Yeah, so hopefully okay. you see your doctor once a year. Uh, it's crazy how some people will, you know, obsess with their their investments every single day. Well, I guess that's one of the things I always kind of assumed like DIY investors did. Like, I'm like, are they like at home on a Friday night, like staring at their computer being like, Oh my God, my investments. And like, I cannot handle that. Some investors are (laughs) those ones who are picking individual stocks who day trade. There's a lot of different. So index investing is a type of, it's a stock, right? So everyone said, if you just wanted something simple and keep in mind, the whole point of investing is you're going to get the average. Yeah. Right. So the TSX gained 5% last year, you're going to get about 5% roughly minus the fees. Mm-hmm. And a lot of advisors will say, hey, you know what? I can do better. Well, that's not necessarily true. And at the same time, there are a lot of good advisors out there, right? But you won't really find them on the retail level at the banks. If you're getting a fee-only advisor or a fee-for-service advisor, someone you're paying real money who comes up with a plan and really looks at your big overall picture, they offer an incredible amount of value, and they've got the technical training to prove it. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of good people out there. So I don't want to brush off advice and leave, but just no. be aware at the branch level and at investment firms, I'd be a little bit more picky about who you're working with. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I have personal experience with that. I, you know, originally when I was just, you know, single and on my own, I um, did do, I think I did do an index fund with an RSP with uh, Tendrine back when it was ING Direct. And then when me and Josh got married, we merged everything, went to the bank, and we met this uh, advisor guy. We really liked him, and I trusted him. And I, it's one of those things where like, oh, I trust them, so I feel like he's going to do good things for us. And then he quit or got fired, I don't know, but we don't have him anymore. And our kind of stuff is a, it's just doing what it's been set up to do, but it's kind of we feel like we're in a bit of a limbo. And it's, it's just one of those weird things where... It's it's a kind of a crazy idea. We had all this money. We gave it to this one person that we met and we liked, and we put all of this trust in him. But it does kind of make sense. It's your money. It's your future um, to kind of put it back into your hands because you're the person that's going to care the most, right? Exactly. That's what I tell people all the time. No one's going to care more about your money than yourself. Absolutely. And at the same time, you know, when you're in a relationship, you put a lot of trust into your partner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously you want anything to work out well, but at the same time, you need to take the time to learn about your finances, both of you, because anything can happen to anyone Absolutely. at any time. Specifically, you know? yeah, just like you mentioned, both of you. Because I know, I feel like it was kind of a generational thing back in the day, our parents or grandparents, there was usually one person that dealt with all of the finances. And it was usually the man, or you know, sometimes the woman, I think in my family, it's um, my mom does a lot of that. And... You know, I guess it's sort of fine, but yeah, it's true. It's like, what if your significant other gets hit by a bus and you have no idea where your money is or what it's doing, or you don't understand it? So yeah. that's why it's so important for yeah. And you know, it's not parties. even necessarily about the investment side of things. Like, no. you know, people don't understand. It's like, like you said, if one of us can get an accident, you might not be able to do this. But you know, how's the mortgage being paid? Exactly. So if you have no idea, like hopefully it's automatic, but if it's not, or you got to do things manually, you miss one, two payments, you could lose your, your home potentially. Mm-hmm. Or what happens if, how you access that emergency money? Someone's had an accident, you need money quickly, you need to get somewhere where they are, but if you don't even know the passwords to your banking information, that could cause a serious concern. And, you know, we're talking about worst case scenarios, like, you know, yeah, yeah you marry someone at the same time, you expect things to do great, but... Divorce happens. Exactly. It's, it's unfortunately, and a lot of women don't realize that. Um, 
I hate to say it, but traditionally women get the worst end through divorce. They mm-hmm. get a lot less. Mm-hmm. And what women also forget is they live longer than men. Yeah. So because of that, women actually need to save a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So a male could potentially save 10%. Well, I'd probably argue you need more than that. But mm-hmm. women need to save a little bit more because they need to make it last a little bit longer. It's just statistically speaking, yeah. you just got to look out for yourself. I'm not saying hide money. No, like but that. no, I think it's totally fair to always have yourself in mind. I mean, mm-hmm. it's good to like, I mean, with me and Josh, we have a system where we're kind of together, but separate. We've mm-hmm. got our together money, but we also have our individual money, but we That's also right, know yeah. exactly where all of the money is. Like we will sit down once in a while, look through all of our accounts and understand you know, where the other person's at, what our goals are, and just kind of, you know. And you touched on something great there, understanding what your goals are. A lot of people don't see that. Like, everyone's got different views about money, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, when you come into a relationship, everyone's going to have the different views. And you can't push your views onto your partner. It's just not fair. It's really just about coming to that understanding of what works for you, what can you live with, and then you're, you're cool, you know, how you manage your budgets. But more importantly, the same thing applies to investing. You know, one person might be an aggressive investor, another mm-hmm. person might be a little bit more conservative, and you got to figure out that medium. And at the same time, you have to look at your own individual situation. Mm-hmm. One partner might have a defined benefit pension, so they can they can be more risky. But as someone who works freelance, they might yeah. need to be saving <laughs> a whole lot more money. They yeah. got to factor in future taxes, come tax time. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things to factor in, so you always need to have that open conversation with your partner and just understand where the money's going and how you feel about it. Because the last thing you want is your partner to regret something, and it's just not fair to each other. Exactly, and that's where all the arguments, you know, that's another statistic. Most people get divorced because of money, and I think a lot of it is because they don't communicate about money and understand what's going on with their finances. So instead of making it a power struggle, it should, honestly, like for us, especially in this past, I guess, two years we've been in Toronto, it has really brought us together, which is crazy. But yeah, money conversations have brought us closer together Mm -hmm. because we feel like we're more connected. We're a family. We're, you know, working hard, making our money so we can support each other as a family. And I think lots of people kind of forget that. And again, that's same with investments. We're looking at investments together, not so much separately, because we want to make sure our money's growing together so we can reach those future goals, maybe have a family, maybe buy a house, all that stuff. Exactly, and it's important because as long as you guys are on the same page, it doesn't matter what other people think. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is going to have an outside opinion. You know, obviously our parents will always have an opinion on how you should spend your money and what you should do with it. But at the same time, you know, they don't understand that things are different these days. Absolutely. You, you know, I mentioned when my parents came to Canada, mm-hmm. um, they literally just worked, saved up money, and paid for the house in cash. It's wow. Not like, it's like maybe that's how low real estate prices in Canada were back then. Damn. But it's yeah. like, like, you know, imagine any of us trying to do that. Now, or at the same time, you know, my parents don't think that you can knock on a door of a company and get a new job instantly. Oh, <laughs> right? my gosh. So, yeah, I've heard that from some of my It's like, you can't really just go into a company and be like, hey, yeah, I'd be great at this. Exactly. You hire me. And that's just parents. So, but more importantly, I find a lot of millennials, people in the younger generation, they're constantly comparing themselves with others. Mm-hmm. They see what mm-hmm. others have and they feel like they've earned it. Uh, there's a big social movement recently mm-hmm. on Twitter saying it's like, don't have a million and people complain. How yeah, like, I've been seeing yeah. that a lot lately. It's almost a bit silly because they're complaining about, hey, you don't have a million dollars, so you can't afford a home. So obviously it was more geared towards Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, they start going, like, well, I've got a degree. Well, well just because you got a degree or something doesn't give you that automatic it doesn't give right. You, yeah, it doesn't to, mean you, you know, should have a job. Maybe you're 
crap at you're a crappy exactly. worker. I don't know. You see, what I'm getting at is is a lot of people expect things to disintegrate. Yeah. They expect the, the fancy car, not a start or the big home, not a starter home. Yeah. They want the yeah. nice house right away, right yeah. with the big garden. Uh, they want the Mercedes or anything. They, they, everything needs to be brand new. They need to have a fancy vacation every single year, and it's easy for us now because you can get credit. So easily. My parents, when yeah. they applied for credit card, they had to go to the bank and physically apply in person, wow. be on their best behavior, mm-hmm. and hopefully get it. And at the same time, you know, you look at current interest rates, people are just used to that. So, you know, I just wouldn't concern myself about what other people are thinking. You just need to worry about what you and your partner know. And if you guys come to the decision together, you can't let anyone else judge you for that. And, and who cares? You know, people are always going to judge you based on mm-hmm. what you wear, what you buy, where you live. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Exactly. And I think it's, that's one of the things that always kind of irritates me about, you know, you mentioned that like million dollar thing. It's ridiculous to use the current situation as an excuse for like, well, I can't because, well, no, you probably can afford a house if you are smart with your money, do your research, educate yourself, invest in the right things and just do it. Like, that's what kind of drives me super crazy is when people just, yeah, well, I can't because, you know, the economy's crap and, oh, I wish I was born 20 years ago when houses were cheaper. It's like, yeah, well, there probably would have been other problems too, you know? Just, you've got to take responsibility for yourself and try your best and it'll work itself out. And also understand that a lot of people, when they talk about money, they have no clue what they're talking about. You know, one common argument is saying, like, you know, renting is just throwing money away. You know, you're paying someone else's mortgage. But mm-hmm. at the same time, if you do basic math, you know, you're going to take a $600,000 mortgage. Yeah. You know, you just look at interest payments, property taxes, maintenance. That oh, yeah. might actually be more than what you pay in rent now. And that doesn't even count if you're investing in your savings. So, yeah. So I, again, I wouldn't let anyone worry about that. You just figure no. it out your own situation. Like you said, you figure it out on your own and you make those decisions. Don't let people influence you. Absolutely. Well, I think Barry touched on a lot of really great points and offered some really great tips on how you can start do-it-yourself investing. I, for one, am definitely going to look into it more for myself. And uh, what's really cool is right after me and Barry's interview, he suggested that I read um, this one really great book that gives me a little bit more information about how to get started. And it's called The Value of Simple, A Practical Guide to Taking the Complexity Out of Investing by John Robertson. And John Robertson, the author of this book, was so gracious to give me a copy to give away. So if you're interested in DIY investing, you're definitely going to want this book. So make sure to check out the show notes for this episode at momoneymohouses.com slash seven, and you can enter to win a copy of this awesome book. So thank you so much again for listening and check back here next week for my episode with Tanya from the personal finance blog, Budget in the Beach. And uh, next week's episode will all be about her journey from employee to self-employed. So make sure to check back next Wednesday. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.